I thank you to Phil and Katie and all the parents who sent in video. They did a lot of work to pull that together. We couldn't watch it, but someone, uh, Jasmine, had it on her phone and we could hear it. So it sounded lovely. There's nothing like kids singing off tune. They just make you feel the love in the air. So it has been, I'm, I just want to say for those of you who were there Wednesday night, thank you for coming to one another. What a fun time. I, I, it was just great to be able to, you know, as Mike and I talked about how to do that meeting, we felt like, you know what, let's just, you know, let's just, let's just enjoy each other. Let's just, it's a, you know, the, work, the year has been crazy. Let's enjoy each other and have fun and just talk and, and hear stories. And we had a backup plan if it didn't go that way, if it wasn't enough. But there was enough just stories. And, 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 and so I appreciated that. I appreciate it. Thank you. There were more of you who, who showed your face. So thank you. It was good to just scroll through and see more faces and not just names. I was really cool. So thank you for listening on that front. But that was good. I think it was good for us to just laugh together. And I mean, I tell you what, I will never see trail mix, will never wear slacks. And I'm looking for a little gnome or something that I can just pass to my family and just start a new tradition of just so it was a good time. Thank you for those who shared. It was Wednesday night was beautiful. And the Lord knew we needed it. He knew we needed that because on Thursday, some of us got news that uh, someone that we cared about, a former member of our church, went to be with the Lord. Um, he was a friend of mine and, and, and many others. And I know many of our, our churches knew, so you wouldn't know who he is, but there are some of us that do remember. And, and, and so over the weekend, I was watching, reading different people's posts. So it was kind of a crazy weekend for me because I got this news on, on Thursday, I believe it was Thursday, uh, that our brother Jason Leidner went to be with the Lord, and he's a brother, so, so he's with the Lord. You know, we don't grieve as the world grieves, but, but we still grieve. And, you know, he left behind his wife and four children and other family members. So that, you know, he's, <laughs> he's doing better than us. <laughs> I doubt that he is wishing he could come back. I bet he's like, I can't wait till y'all get here. But it was, it's been a bittersweet few days hearing that. And then on Friday, my son turned 13. So I was just ex been excited to celebrate that. And that's, those plans had to change because of COVID. So here I have, I am the father of a teenager now. So please pray for Betsy and I. He's a good kid, but, you know, you hear so many things about when kids become teenagers. But we celebrated that, and one of the ways we celebrated it is my son is an animal lover, and so we decided to get him a kitten. Yes, I have a kitten. A small black kitten with these big kind of bluish silver eyes, 
named Murky. And man, he has been a bundle of joy. I, I got to be honest. I thought I would be more just indifferent, like, all right, we got a, you know, we got a kitten. That's fine. You know, I didn't think I'd care, but I like this little dude. Like, I like him. You can't not like him when he comes up on you and just lays on your arm right here for a couple of hours. And sometimes he's asleep. Sometimes he's just chilling. Sometimes he's looking up at you. So it's just been fun. So, that, so, so, so you get this, this wonderful moment on Wednesday night, this shocking, perplexing news on Thursday, then my son's birthday, then I released a new album, and it was my 13th album on my son's 13th birthday, and I planned it that way so I would just have a bunch of things to celebrate. It's the first time that I used my actual photo that I took for the album cover, and I released it, and the, and the feedback has been incredible, and I was excited, but there was a part of me that wasn't as excited as I could be because the loss of my brother and my friend and thinking about his family and all of this. And so we got this, so I'm in this weird mix on through the weekend. And then knowing I still have to come preach today, I can't just say, hey, I'm taking off today. I'm, I'm not preaching today. Obviously, I could have if I needed to, but I didn't feel like that was necessary. And one of the reasons why I didn't, because I feel like what the Lord had in his word for today it just reminded me of something greater, reminded me in some senses of my buddy, my friend, who I'll see, Lord willing, on the other side of glory. It reminded me of just who Jesus is and just that reality. And that doesn't change. I was texting, me and Shemaine texted, and I just, in the conversation, I just said, you know, eternal life goes on and so must this life. And that's a hard reality for the people who will experience Jason's, his transition to being with the Lord even harder than, harder than many of us because we haven't seen him in a few years. We talked a couple years ago, I helped him walk through a, a situation that was significant for his family and I was, I was privileged to be able to do that. And, and we'll always see this brother as, as a brother and I'll miss him. And I will be praying for his family. And so this whole weekend for me has just been crazy. So you get you Wednesday night, loved it, couldn't, just, just couldn't have a, a better meeting, laughing, people were sharing. Thursday, I get this news. Friday, my album releases. It's my son's birthday. I'm excited. And, but I was just distracted in many ways. And so the Lord brought me to this passage for our church this morning. And I'm going to do something slightly different today. I had a message that was more centered on Jesus's, Jesus going back to Jerusalem as a, as, as, and sort of the foreshadowing of him going back to the place where he foreshadowed his own death. At the same time, while he's there to preserve his life, their children are being killed because they're looking to kill. I just had this whole scheme that I thought would have been cool, but in light of my, my, my brother's passing, I just didn't feel up for doing that. So I feel like the Lord gave me another passage that I was grateful to be able to, to take you to this morning. So we're going to look at something different. We're not going to focus on the actual birth of Jesus, but just, just moments before the birth of Jesus will be our focus this morning, beginning in, in Luke chapter 1. And one of the things that I really love about the Lord, and, and, and as you heard last week, if you watched the sermon, and, and, and one of the ways I meditate is I look for how God is setting the stage for things. I, I love to watch him 
set the stage. He's very methodical, and sometimes it seems like it's random, but there's a lot of order to God's apparent randomness. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ways that he, he sets things in motion, sometimes through, through what we call biblical theology. We, we trace themes throughout the Bible and see how those themes start off small here and get bigger and bigger. And, and one of the ways that he does that, that he, he sets things in motion, is by names. And the names that he gives himself, the names that he gives his son, end up becoming sort of a theme of, of, of ways that we can see how God is working. And so this morning, we're going to primarily look at two verses in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, but we're going to also get some background story to make sure we understand why these two verses are significant this morning. And I pray that God will allow me to, to persevere and give you a word without distraction for his glory and our good. Beginning in Luke chapter 1, just two verses, verse 78 and 79. And I quote, it says this. Because of our God's merciful compassion... The dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. We read this again. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, if we just read these, these, these verses in and of themselves are powerful and amazing. But to understand the significance of these words, we have to understand the context in which these words were spoken. What was happening when these words were given? Now, many of us know the story of, of Luke and, and, and John the Baptist and then Jesus coming. But so the context of the story is this. It begins with Zechariah, who is the high priest who is allowed to go behind the curtain into the temple and, and worship God. And, and that only happens once a year. The high priest goes there once a year. He is visited by the angel Gabriel, who tells him that he's going to, his wife Elizabeth is going to have a son, and he's going to name him John. And Zechariah questions Gabriel, and from the question just reading it, I, it sounds like it's the same kind of question that Mary asked, but obviously it wasn't. It had a bit of doubt in the question because Gabriel communicated, I stand in the presence of the Lord. And I'm getting, so he had to remind him, hold on, man, who are you, who you questioning? Who are you talking to like that? I stand in the presence of the Lord. And I've, I've heard from him to tell you this, but because you doubted, you will not be able to talk for nine months until the, the child is born. And you'll name him John. So Zechariah comes out. He can't talk. And people are like, oh, my gosh, what, what happened? What was his experience? What happened to him? And so now think about this. Nine months is a long time. This is a guy who I would imagine communicates quite a bit. And so for nine months, he can't talk. And the only thing he can do at best is kind of write down what happened to him. So when the nine months are over, here's what it says in verse 57 of Luke chapter one. Here's what we find out. Now, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy 
and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father, which is standard in that day. You name your child after you, especially your son after the father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John, real Palestinian name. Then they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted to be called. Now, I remind you, John isn't speaking yet. So they get his attention. Hey, what do you what do you think? And he asked for a writing tablet, this is verse 63, and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them. And all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. All right, so let me stop there and make sure we're tracking here. All right, so Elizabeth has the baby. And at this point, John hasn't said a word since he came out of the temple. Now, I imagine that most people who know he was a high priest, that went to the temple, they knew that when he came back, something was different. He wasn't allowed to talk, and they were religious people, so they would have made the connection that somehow God is forbidding him to communicate with words at this time. And so when he's able to talk after he agrees that the name is John, people are blown away. His tongue was loosened. The first time anyone has heard his voice, in nine months. And it says he began to speak in praising God. And so all the people in the neighborhood, these are close-knit people. It says that the people came to, to they were excited for her. They, they, they gathered to see the baby. And so he, he's allowed to talk and he starts to proclaim these th- true things. And it says the whole country of Judea was talking about this. And they were wondering Who is this child, John? The Lord's hand is clearly with him because his dad couldn't even talk. And then he has him. So everything's centered around this little baby, John. And everyone's wondering what is going on here. Everyone's talking. And then right after that, we find out that Zechariah in verse 67, here's what happens next. In verse 67, it says this. Then his father, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by his by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness and presence all our days. Let's pause for a second. So here, now that he's able to talk, he's filled with the spirit and the spirit says he prophesies. And one of the beautiful things about that reality is when it says he prophesied, nothing that he said was predictive. See, we we tend to view prophecy in a Nostradamus sense where you see in, in 2022, 
this, this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. And that's what we think prophecy is. And the argument over prophecy sometimes is centered on predictive nature when prophecy, biblically speaking, most times is proclamative. It, it proclaims things that God has already done in powerful and supernatural ways to the point where people are affected. That's the kind of prophecy that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. Well, if an unbeliever is in your midst and they see you prophesying, they're going to be like, God is in this place. How could an unbeliever believe that if everything you're saying hasn't happened yet? So, again, we're getting a taste of the other side of prophecy. Yes, it does predict. Absolutely. But it also proclaims. Absolutely. And so here you have Zechariah. Everyone's looking at his son and he's saying all this stuff. And giving glory to God and people. I mean, I mean, I tell you, there's nothing like holding a newborn baby. Everyone's focused around their son. I got three boys. And every time I held them, every time they were born, I would hold them. And, you, you know, you could wrap you up in that, that white and with the faded light blue stripe and the red stripe. Every hospital has them. And they give you the knitted hat. And your son's just looking at you. And he's got these beady black eyes. And he's just dead. He can now hear you fully. And I'm just... Focus on them. And I, I, each one of my sons, I were singing hymns to them or singing worship songs to them. And I'm imagining who they're going to be. And I'm imagining what are they thinking about me holding them? They've heard my voice at, at their mom's belly. They've heard it muffled to some degree because they've been inside their mom. But now they're out and they can hear me and smell me. And I'm looking at them. And there's nothing greater than holding my sons and just imagining who they're going to be. And here's John in the same experience. Everyone's wondering, who is this kid going to be? And then John breaks out in this amazing prophecy. But the most amazing thing about the prophecy was he wasn't talking about his son. I mean, imagine if I'm holding my newborn son and then I start talking about and I'm not talking about him. It would seem weird. Everything he's saying it's not about his own son, but everyone else is focusing on his son, wondering who his son's going to be because it's clear that God is with him. And when he starts to prophesy, he's talking about everything except his own son. In fact, he only uses two verses out of these 11 to address his own son as an infant. And he says it in verse 76 and 77. Here's what he says to his own son. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That's the only time he's talking to his son. The other nine verses of the 11 verses, that little baby that's in front of them, that everyone's wondering who he is, is not who the dad is talking about. He's talking about another baby who's six months behind this baby, and no one knows who he's talking about. So what we're going to do today is answer three questions. Why is he talking about a baby that's not his own? Who is this baby, and what is this baby going to do? Let's start with why. Why is he talking about a baby that's not his own? Well, now we're back to our main verse, verse 78. Here's what it says. Let's read it again. So after he addresses his son, this is who you will be. He comes back and says this in verse 78. 
Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn of high will visit us. Now, this this passage would have been just as legitimate, I believe, I think so, if it had just said, because of our God's compassion, the dawn of from on high will visit us. But the passage adds merciful. Because of our God's merciful compassion, not just compassion, but merciful compassion. So God is wanting to know that there is something to this compassion that is not just compassion, because compassion by itself from God is more than adequate. But this compassion is merciful compassion. There's a caveat to this compassion. And while the definitions seem to overlap. There are two different words in the Greek to communicate and emphasize the kind of passion that this is. It's a merciful compassion. It's an it's an active motive from God to be compassionate towards a particular group of people. Now, the merciful has a dynamic. It has penalty. It's penal related. It has a penalty. In other words, the mercy is towards people who deserve a penalty from God. So it could have just been compassion, but the merciful element is there to remind that these are people who don't deserve the mercy of God, let alone the compassion. But the mercy on top of the compassion adds an element of how significant God is and how he feels about these people because it's the, the, the tension here is that these, this is penal related, this penalty. When we think of penal institution, we think of prisons being locked up. You did the crime, you do the time. The merciful nature here is talking about penalty. People who deserve penal, the penal substitution, not the penal substitution, but the, pe- the penalty, the penal institution of eternal locking away. You see, compassion, compassion just means I'm having pity on you. But merciful compassion means I'm taking penalty from you. It's different. We all can have compassion. We take pity on people, sorrow. We want to. But none of our compassion can take the penalty from people. I can have pity on anyone. I have pity on anyone. Give people in the street money, feed people, give them anything I have. And I would be taking compassion. But I could never go to a court of law and say, Your Honor, I didn't do the crime that he's responsible for, but I'd like to go to prison instead of him. That just won't happen. That kind of compassion I can't do. We can't do. I can't. I can lie now and say I did it and you didn't and did it, but that wouldn't be merciful because that'd just be lying. That's sinful. But if I wanted to legitimately honor the Lord and stand before a judge and say he did it, but I want to go to prison instead, that doesn't happen in this culture. Doesn't happen. But in this scene, in this verse, that's setting the stage for this to happen. So it's not just compassion that God is taking pity on people. It's merciful compassion because God is taking penalty from people. He's lenient towards offenders of his law. 
and therefore it makes it merciful. And this is why, this is why as the spirit engulfs John and he begins to prophesy, it's why he's focusing on another baby instead of the baby that he's holding that everyone's looking at. Because the baby that he's holding is not the one who is merciful and his compassion is not the one who can take penalty from people. He can show pity towards people. But the reason why he's talking about this baby is because the baby that they don't know that is not in this scene is the one who's going to take penalty from people. And that's the merciful side of his compassion. And this is why that mercy is so significant that it trumps the joy of John and his own son. It trumps the reality, no pun intended. It's more important than the love that he has for his son, the excitement that the people have for Elizabeth, that she has a son. The wonder, this is what people are wondering about this baby. They're wondering about John and all the people in Judea are talking about this John and how compassionate and how loving that God is to give Elizabeth this baby. But none of them know that this baby is not the baby that is going to take penalty from them. He will take pity on them. But the baby that he's talking about will take penalty from them. This is why it's more important to talk about another baby that hasn't even been born yet instead of his own. So who is this baby? Spoiler alert. But let's look at how he's described in the verse. Let's read again verse 78. Because of our God's merciful compassion, and there's so much, you can see. I feel like we could do, I could stop right there and I could just do the whole message on that, the reality of the merciful compassion, the penal versus the pity. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us. The dawn from on high will visit us. One of the things that even as a kid, as a kid, I've always been fascinated with the sky. I don't know why. Always been fascinated with the sky and how, how clouds look and sunsets and sunrises. And I've always just been blown away, even just before how beautiful that was. And then when I started to do photography, there were times that I would get up early and get out to just go catch the sunrise. I wanted to just see how the sun, how it goes from being dark and how it just comes out of nowhere almost, rising from the east, so to speak. Not that the sun doesn't rise or fall, it's just the earth moves, right? But that's the language. So it's just a sense of, I would, I would want to see how the sun, because when it comes, it brings this, this beautiful soft light. There's sort of this purple and orange and bluish sort of, sort of thing that the photographers, we call it the golden hour, where there's an hour it's right as the sun is coming and before it's fully, there's just this soft, and this is where you like to do your best shooting in the morning or sunset because the light is really soft. And I remember one time driving out to, um, by, the, by the bridge, went out to that little, little beach by the bridge, by the Bay Bridge. And I just, I knew the sun rose in the east and that's east is that way, towards, towards um, Ocean City. 
So I went out to the Bay Bridge. I forgot what that beach is called, um, right there by the Bay Bridge. But I went there. No one was there. It was freezing cold. This was like four years ago, five years in December. And it was freezing. And I went there one morning. And I just watched. And I just wanted to take pictures of the sun coming up. And I didn't know which way it was going to come. And then all of a sudden, I was sitting there. It was cold. I think I'd had some hot chocolate from McDonald's. By the time I got there, the hot chocolate was cold. And so it wasn't really helpful. But I was watching the sun just slowly. And I was looking. And I saw, I saw vestiges of the light start to light up. And I was like, OK, where is it coming? And I just saw this little sliver of orange just come up directly in front of me. And I just watched. And I just watched. And I started to take pictures and watch the sun just slowly just look like it just peaked up. Just watch the dawn just come. And the impact of how it was pitch black 15 minutes ago, and now it's just like you see this slowly, and it was incredible. I'd never seen that. I've seen many sunsets, but I never actually did a sunrise because it requires a different discipline to get up early and see that. But I'm out here, I'm taking pictures and stuff. I'm like, wow, this is incredible, and it's just coming up. It's almost like it's coming up over the horizon. It looks like it is rising, and I was blown away by this reality. And here I am, me, myself, and I, with just the beach, the bay, the bridge, a few cars going across the bridge, and just the dawn just approaching and how it changes everything. It was a moment. And if, and if you've seen that before, there's almost nothing like it, especially when there's water in front of you. I don't know what it is about water just makes stuff look better. I'm talking about real like water. I ain't talking about pour a puddle on the ground or something. I'm talking about like ocean and stuff like that just makes it look better, right? Well, this scene is describing something that I can resonate with. If you've seen the sunrise, it says, the dawn from on high will visit us. He doesn't call him Jesus. Doesn't call, he says, the dawn from on high. It's almost like a nickname, if you will, but much more significant. Nicknames serve their purpose. I have, my sons have like 10 nicknames each. They respond to all of them. And they all mean something to me. And I have friends that I've nicknamed, and, they, and those are always often their terms of endearment, even if they're making fun of you. It'd be like calling me tiny. Yeah, right. But I'm saying there are things that happen, right? You, you come up with names to identify with the particular person. You come up with names that, that show a term of endearment or maybe something that person did. And so names matter. We nickname people because they, they matter to us. We nickname our, our spouses affectionate names that only you and your spouse call each other that because that matters. It's a, it's a term of affection. Well, these names of God mean something. The names of Jesus mean something. and They describe aspects of his character and who he is. And when we get to this particular verse, it talks about the dawn from on high. This is a significant description because it, it's setting the stage for something that the Bible talks about quite a bit. I've mentioned this before, but in Genesis chapter 1, there's an amazing scene. That if you, you overlook this, and I mentioned this before, so let's just review real quick. Let's just remember, previously at Solid Rock. Genesis 1, there's this scene that is incredible. I'll read this. I'll read this. Beginning in verse 1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void and empty. Dark, I'm void, I'm, using, I'm thinking of other translations. That happens sometimes when you read. You know it, you know it from like three different translations. Be quoting the King James and all that, the New King James, the 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered over the surface of the watery depths. And the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. So here you have the earth. It's, just, it's, it's, it's formless. It's dark. It's nothing. It's just, we know there's just water there. And the spirit's just hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was an evening and there was morning one day. So when you look at this scene, you see something important. This is very important to understand the significance of the dawn from on high, what the dawn actually represents. In this particular scene, before things were created, when things were dark and there was just waters there, the spirit is hovering. And God says, in the midst of the darkness, let there be light. So light comes to invade the darkness. God doesn't get rid of the darkness, but he makes the darkness submit to the light. And one of the reasons why is because God was not going to establish life without light. When light is established, then so is life. So at the beginning of the, before the foundation of the world, as, as things are coming and now the world is here, it's nothing but darkness. God invades it and says, let there be light. And then he takes the darkness and calls it night and the day. And he submit the darkness submits to the light. God uses it and then forms it. And then from that, he can create. He creates. He doesn't create darkness. He establishes light and makes it submit to this darkness. God is exerting his authority over darkness here in Genesis 1. And the darkness submitting to the light is a major motif. It's a major theme in the Bible. Darkness and death is a major theme. And light and life is a major theme in the Bible. And we see the beginnings of it here. There's darkness. There's no life. It says the Holy Spirit was hovering. That's it. No one else was there. Just God and the darkness that we know of. Now, we can get into all theological stuff and with Satan there already and all that. That's not today's message. But here you have no life, no light, darkness. God says, let there be light. And then as we know, each day, life begins to be being built. Up until the sixth day where mankind is created. This idea of the dawn coming from on high is a significant statement because the dawn represents the sun that I saw but it's describing the sun, S-O-N, that came. So it's describing it in the analogy of the S-U-N that comes to bring light, but it's describing the S-O-N who is light. This is a major, major description. This is no analytical tool, analogical tool. This is this is a fundamental reality. This is God's getting at something significant. The dawn from on high will visit us. When the dawn comes, what happens? It gets brighter. It gets warmer. You see things clearer. You can move in ways that you couldn't when it was dark. There's more safety, more comfortability. There were times I couldn't see as well because it was dark, and so I wanted to be careful. But now I can see because the dawn has come. The S-U-N showed itself and lit, lit the earth. And so now they're describing the, the S-U-N as describing the S-O-N. 
In Isaiah chapter 14, there is this, some people call this the principle of double interpretation. Some people don't like this, but I personally believe that God does this, where he's talking to someone like a human being, but then he's also talking to the spiritual enemy behind that human being's actions. Some people think, no, this is talking about the king of Tyre and Sidon and all that, and and then Ezekiel 28 is something similar. I I don't believe that, because I think you look at Genesis 3, What's interesting about Genesis 3 is God doesn't just blame Satan. He blames the animal, right? He condemns. So he says to the animal, you look at Genesis 3, verse 15. He says this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. He says you will go out the rest of your days eating the dust of the earth. So I don't know what serpents looked like prior to that, but after that, they, were, they now slither on the ground. So, they did. So, he go, so he talks to the actual serpent, a snake, who really, by all intents purposes, say, what was he supposed to do? Like, Satan, you can't come in here. If it, like, what, what was he supposed to say? But God still curses the actual snake, and then he talks to Satan. Well, in this passage, I don't believe that he's just describing this particular uh, arrogant king. I, I think in many theologians think he's talking to the enemy behind this king's actions. And listen to what he says in Isaiah 14. Verses 12 through 15, he says this, shining morning star. How you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations. You have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mounts of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the pit. You see, this idea, shining morning star, is not describing who Satan is. It's describing who he wanted to be. It's a mockery. You are not the shining morning star. Jesus is. In Revelation 21, Jesus refers to himself as the bright morning star. This is a mockery saying you wanted to be the dawn from on high. You wanted to be Jesus. You thought you could do all these things. You thought, Satan, you were going to be able to do this. You thought you were going to ascend above God and be the shining one, the one whom everyone looks to. You thought you would do these things, but you will be brought down low. You've been brought down. You see, this idea of the darkness wanting to take over the light and wanting to be there, and you get this mockery here from Isaiah, shining morning star. How you have fallen from the heavens. What what star falls from the heavens? Not in the way that they're describing. He's describing a star who thought he was going to be the star of stars. There's this contrast where you're a shining morning star, which you're not. And yet here's the dawn, the sun. From on high. You see, the true God is seen as the dawn. This is a wonderful reality because it's setting the stage for this darkness and death and light and life. And this dawn, he's going to come and visit because of the merciful compassion. God's merciful, the dawn from on high will visit us. He's coming to visit. God always starts with the light. He creates life after the light and gets rid of the dark. 
This is what happened in creation. Let there be light. And then he creates life. Then he gets to mankind. And when mankind sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned and bit the fruit, you know what happened? Darkness came back. Darkness came back. Sin brings the darkness back. So Jesus comes to bring the light back to that darkness. Because when darkness comes, guess what? So does death. That was the point of what God said to Adam. If you bite from this tree, you will surely die. Because darkness comes with death. And so when sin comes, comes death. It's darkness. And it's so you see this theme in the Bible. People love the darkness. They love to live opposite of the way God has commanded. But when Jesus comes, he brings light. And when light comes, comes life. When life comes, there's no death. In fact, listen to what Ephesians 2.1 says. Here's Ephesians 2.1 describing in just a brief, brief passage, a brief verse, this reality. He says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, he's not talking about you were dead as we come to know death. It's people in the grave. He's saying you were alive, but there was darkness in you. There was death in you. You were dead in terms of the light of God. But then Jesus comes and reestablishes the light in us, gives us new life. That's why it's called born again. And then now we see death differently, both like my friend who passed, we celebrate differently, but both in the way we view our lives. Like Romans 8.13 says this. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you see there's we're dead and there's darkness. And then the dawn from on high comes to visit us. And then he gives us light and then he gives us life. And now we voluntarily die. Now we choose to die. We put to death the deeds of the body. We die to ourselves. Because the dawn from on high is now showing us what we didn't see before. God is recreating, but he starts with light. He starts with light. And Jesus is that light. You won't have this because I didn't give this to Dean, but we've been getting a little lazy around here, so you guys can turn to John 1 real quick. We've been giving everything for y'all. Y'all don't even got to open your Bibles no more. Click on that app. Open your Bible to John chapter 1 and listen to this description. Listen to this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the beginning. He was with God in the beginning. All things that were created through him, all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created in him was life. And the and the, that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness. And yet the darkness did not overcome it. 
So you see this this illustration, this analogy of the dawn from on high is not just clever prose. It's not just it's not just nice, illustrious, uh, a, a, a good illustration to kind of flatter the ear. It's not it's not so poetic to make it so. This is a prophecy inspired by the spirit acknowledging a significant function of the S.O.N. by describing it in the framework of the S.U.N. Because that's the way we can understand when the dawn comes, it brings light. And it says he will come to visit us. It means that, the, that Jesus is coming to determine the condition of people. It means to examine or to inspect, to look after. This is the who of the prophecy. Why did he talk about the prophecy? Because it's a merciful, uh, not just a, pen, a, a pity, but a, a penalty. I'm not having pity on you. I'm taking penalty from you. And then who is this? Man, he's the dawn from on high. Now, mind you, last thing on that point. The people in this scene who are hearing the prophecy, they know of Genesis 1 and Isaiah 14. They know of this, this idea of light and dark because that was in their Bible. The Old Testament was their word. So this is not new to them. So when he's making these claims, even though they don't know who it is yet, when they would come back to it, it would be like, oh, okay, this Jesus is the sun. He's the dawn from on high. What's interesting about the S-U-N is it looks like it rises from the bottom to the top. So if you watch a sunrise, it'll come up. That's the whole point of sunrise, right? It looks like it's going up. So it looks like it comes from the bottom. The S-U-N comes from the bottom up. But the S-O-N comes from the the top down. That's why he said the dawn from on high, not the dawn that comes from below, because the S-U-N comes from below and up, at least from our visual image. But the S-O-N comes from above down to below. So the dawn from on high, the one who created the S-U-N, the one who lights the heavens, is now going to come down to our darkness and see what's going on and observe. But more than observe, more than examine, more than inspect, he's going to look after his people. And he's going to contend with the darkness And that leads us to last, the last point. We looked at the who, the why. Is he talking about this instead of his own son? Who is he talking about instead of his own son? And now what will this person do? What will Jesus do that his son does? Verse 79. He says, to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. To shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Two things that he's going to do, that he's doing and has done. But in the context of the passage, he hasn't come yet. Two things, shine and guide. Shine and guide. So the darkness that was there before the foundation of the world, that light invaded, light invaded the same Jesus who was with him, 
who was with him in the beginning, and the beginning was with, he was with God and was the word of God. Let there be light. Here's Jesus, shining light. And then that same reality becomes the way he interacts with humanity. It wasn't just to create humanity. It was to become like humanity. You see, that's the, that's the, that's the beauty of it. You see, that shining light into the darkness to establish humanity set in motion, Jesus now being the light that comes to the darkness again to save humanity. You see, these are, this is, God is incredible how he does this. He sets these things in motion. And if we look at them closely, we're like, wait a minute, this is that, that's this. And then you see this play out completely until you get to Revelation, where it says that the sun will be no more because Jesus will light up heaven. There needs to be no other, there, needs, there is no S-U-N. Because everything is lit from the S-O-N. So he comes to shine and God. He shines. He creates. He's recreating humanity from the darkness. And this is the merciful part of the compassion. Here's the merciful part. Listen to what it says here. To shine on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death. Now, depending on how you process live in will make all the difference. Because of what we know, other scriptures that talk about the plight of humanity, this live in darkness is not people who are living against their will. It's not like they're, they want to live in the light, but they're living in darkness. Though this is describing people who are living in, who live in darkness, who are settled. They're not crying out. They're not struggling with. They're living in darkness. So he's come to shine light on people who live in darkness. And the shadow of death. They live in darkness as a fear of death. It's all, that's Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Almost the same thing. This living in darkness are people that accept it. We accept living in darkness. And that's this motif of life and light and darkness, light and life and darkness and death. He's coming to shine on people who would rather live in the darkness is what he's getting at. They live in the darkness in the shadow of death. You know what's interesting? I don't know why this is, but we tend to think, many of us do, we tend to think of people as almost like living forever, so to speak. It's like whenever you hear about a celebrity that died, it's always shocking. They could be like 79 and say, oh, my gosh. Who was that recently? Uh, was that Pat Sa- Who was it? Uh, Alex Trebek? Jeopardy dude? It's like, oh, my gosh. Alex, like he was going to live forever. There's this, there's this, there's this reality that even though you live in darkness, you think you're just going to just, just keep living. And you don't realize the shadow of death is behind you. And even us, as we interact with people, we just don't see it. And we think people were were shocked. And don't get me wrong. My friend Jason, that's different because that's that's 35 years old. Father of four caught off guard. Great shape. What? But we tend to think of everyone like that. You hear someone famous down and say, wow. And you know what? They think the same way. But when we grieve, we grieve over their spiritual condition. But they tend to think the same way, that they're just not going to die. 
They just do whatever and live for whatever and think somehow it's not going to catch up to them. They don't believe the wages of sin or death. So when this passage is talking about to shine light on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, it's not describing what they're aware of. It's describing what he's aware of. They're not aware that they're living in darkness and in the shadow of death, but he knows that. That's where the merciful comes in because he knows that people are living in, in the shadow of death. They don't even think they're going to die or they think it's just going to happen some, so far away that doesn't even take it seriously. And even when they do die, it's like, wow, I can't believe it. No, this happens every day. Every day. People are standing before the Lord and seeing a father or a judge at every moment of every day. But Jesus came so that some people would see a father and not a judge. Light in life to shine on those who live in the darkness and the shadow of death. This idea, this 1 John 1, 7 tells us this. It says this, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this idea, we walk in the light. We believe in Jesus. We're connected to Jesus. We live for Jesus. We live in light of Jesus. The dawn from on high has come. And he's come to shine on us, to help us see what's going on, the reality. And he's come to guide us, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The imagery that he will guide us out of darkness is great. If you've ever been someplace and you needed a tour guide. You ever been to like a city and you're walking down the street and you'll see a big crowd of people walking with someone who's like, all right, and over here is where they built the whole thing. I remember one time being down in New Orleans and there were just people, just mobs of people, like different groups of people. And I was like, man, what's going on? And then I realized, oh, they were walking with a tour guide. Okay, so here is where such and such, such and such had this and this and this and, this, and you got to follow the guide. And if you don't follow the guide, you get lost and you don't know where you're going. Unless you keep an eye on people. But you got to follow the guy. That's the whole point. You go to a museum and they tell you, stay with the guy, please. Stay with the party. Follow here because we don't want you to get lost. Follow the guide. It's an important reality. We're here. Jesus is going to guide us in our feet into the way of peace. We follow Jesus. He's the light. It's dark out here. He's got the flashlight. You know, one of my favorite movies, well, it's not probably my favorite, the part two is my favorite. So I, there was this movie called Pitch Black starring Vin Diesel. I like this movie. Karen said, oh yeah, Karen's hip, she hip. Me and Karen like a lot of the same movies. We be, we be watching sci-fi joints, huh? So this movie is about this guy and a group of people who end up, he's a prisoner, he's a violent criminal. And there's a, there's a, he's, trans, he's being transported to this other place and there's some other people on the ship. And the ship crashes on this planet. And this planet has this unknown horror where there are these alien creatures that come out at, at when it's nighttime only. They can't come out any light. They can't see any light. Light will affect them. And so they get on this planet and they crash and they realize where they are and they're trying to fix the ship before the light that's shining, like whatever that sun was before it goes down. But before they can fix the ship, the sun goes down, which obviously because it wouldn't be a good movie if they fixed the ship. 
And once the sun goes down, you hear this sound, almost sounds like dolphins or something. And then you see this, you hear this boom and all these monsters that are flying. They look ugly, too. They make all this noise like they're finally free to come out and roam on this planet. But the problem is there's people there and they're going to kill these folks. And the only thing that will stop them is light or Vin Diesel. And there's this one scene. So they obviously start killing the people. They just, they're hip. They're hungry. They've been, they've been, they've been hibernating for a while. There's this one scene, though, where I forgot how he got it, but there was this little light that he put into this jar. And there was this one scene where it was getting dark, and they didn't realize. And these things are clever. Like, they sneak up on you. And like they'd be like, hey, man, you're about to die. Like, they, they come up on you, and you realize you're about to die when you look this way, and you look back, and this one right here, and you see his teeth, and that's a rat. That's how it's fade to black. So there's this one scene where him and someone else are walking through like this cave and it's getting dark and they're like, man, we don't, what are we going to do? And the, 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 the person, which is really actually a girl, they think it's a boy, but it's really a girl. She has this little light and she puts it into this jar. And then once she puts it into the jar, the jar lights up when these aliens are close. She puts it into the jar and holds it up and then they realize there are monsters all surrounding them. And the only thing stopping them from killing them is that little bit of light right there. That's how powerful the light is. It cannot kill them as long as they hold it. But if that light goes out, snack time. That little light can fight the darkness. Same thing in our reality. It can be pitch black, right? Light a, light a match. Just a little match, you'll be able to see some things you couldn't. It won't light up the whole room because it's too small, but it'll make darkness flee. Just a little bit of light will make darkness flee. And then that match will burn down to your fingertips. You'll be like, ah, ah. And then you're going to drop it, and then the alien's got you. Snack time. This imagery of guiding us is important because it's the light that guides our feet. And this isn't a little light. This is the dawn from on eye who establishes, who is light himself. He's light himself. And it says he will guide us out of darkness into the way of peace. He guides, we follow. Now, in the context of the story, these people don't know what's happening yet. We have the privilege of looking back and seeing what's happening. We know what this means. But in this context, People are wondering, why is he talking about, well, then maybe they're not. I would be wondering, why is he talking about somebody else It's not his kid? I'd have thought, man, he lost his mind a little bit when he couldn't talk for nine months. But the reality is, the kid that he's talking about, instead of his own, is way more important than his own. Jesus' glory is always greater than my and your story. Always. And that's a tough pill to swallow. It's tough to swallow the fact that God's glory is greater than my story. And that even when I don't understand his glory, I have to submit that it's, it's, it's better than my story. So when I think about my brother who's gone on to be with the Lord, 
I don't know why I don't like that the Lord did this. If, if I were being honest, I'd say I don't think this is fair or right. But it's not enough to make me not trust him. Because his glory is greater than my story, every story. When I heard, the first thing I prayed was, Lord, these are my exact words. I said, you do not owe me seeing my children grow up. You don't owe me that. You don't owe me seeing my children get married or become productive people in society. You don't owe me that. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe me being a pastor at this church. You don't owe me anything. But whatever you do, I'm going to trust you regardless. And I'm going to trust that your sovereignty is good enough to care for his family in ways that I don't like or understand. And the fact that he sent his son into the darkness to die for us, to give us his light. I don't have anything that can compete with that. So I grieve. Not as one who doesn't have hope. But if Jesus could cry when he was going to bring Lazarus back from the dead, it's hard if we cry a little too when he brings someone to him that we love. Praise God that the, the dawn from on high has come and his glory is more important than my story. And as he said to John the Baptist, blessed are those who are not offended because of me. May this Christmas, this Christmas is going to go down as one that was just, wow, 2020 has been a complicated, difficult year for almost all of us. And it's not even over yet. May the Lord guide our steps. May he shine light into the darkness that we may not even know that we have. That's a theme in the Bible. It will be a theme in the lives of people who believe the Bible for his glory and our good. Father, this is a season where we say Jesus is the reason for the season. And those are such cleverly said phrases, and it's true to some degree, but I just I don't even care about this season. That ultimately means nothing. It's you're you're the reason for existence. You're the reason that I'm here this morning and still alive, still breathing. Lord, I pray that you would comfort Sarah and their four children. I pray that you would comfort Gordon and Jean and Mike and, and Dan and their spouses.
Lord, we don't always know why you do what you do. But you don't just do things that are confusing in our lives. You, it's, 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 it's insane that you let Jesus come to die for us, for our sins. And Lord, we're not asking to make sense of anything right now. That's just not even wise. But we just, we just care for those of us that know. For those of us that don't, Lord, may this be a year that we just persevere and continue and enjoy, enjoy Christmas for what it is to us. We don't celebrate just your birth. We celebrate you every week. But may this week in particular just be one of giving gifts where necessary, where appropriate, making connections, enjoying friends and family. Thank you for the wonderful meeting we had Wednesday. Thank you that my son is 13 and he has a kitten. Thank you that I released an album that people are enjoying. Thank you for all those things. And thank you also that you brought Jason home to glory. It would not have been my timing. It wouldn't have been my preference. But that's exactly the point. It's not about my timing or my preference. It's about yours. And so thank you that you gave this brother faith in you to believe in you so that when you decided to take his life from here, that he would spend the rest of that life with you. And Lord, by your grace, we look forward to one day seeing and hugging and rejoicing with this brother again. But until then, Lord, we pray that you would guide and protect and shine the light on his family. And for those of us who do know them, may we grieve in a way that's appropriate, not more than we should, but not less than we should. May we grieve appropriately knowing that even though his family will miss him, and we will miss him to some degree, even though we're not around him as much as his family. But let us grieve knowing that you brought him home for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. His church is hosting a Zoom session in which people can come and, in one sense, kind of encourage the family, sort of pay their respects. Uh, Mike has the link to that. Where if you want to join that, then you have to email Mike at mike at solidrockchurch.net by 4 p.m. I imagine there's going to be a lot of people on the Zoom call, so if you really don't need to be there, then maybe you shouldn't, but you can pray for the Leidner family, for Sarah and their four children, and, um, and then the parents, Gordon and Jean. Those of us who know him, know the family, please be praying for them. This will be as... We can only imagine a very difficult thing. If it's difficult for me and others, it's going to be way, it's way more difficult for them. Um, but if you, if you feel like you want to be a part of that Zoom call, contact Mike. Don't feel like you need to be unless um, you really think you should be a part of that Zoom call. I don't know how it's going to be, um, but I'm sure it's going, to be, it's going to be challenging to some degree. It's going to be, I'm sure, emotional, but I think God will use it, and so... Uh, having said that, no Q&A today, so if you had some questions, I apologize. We're just chilling today. So this is our last message before Christmas, so you may get an email or something from us. But apart from that, man, we miss you guys. We love you, and we will see you. Have a great time together, whether it's through Zoom or in person with your family. Cherish them. In all honesty, no day is promised. They say in the world, give people their flowers while they can still smell them. Let people know you love them because you just never know when you won't be able to say that to them on this side of glory anymore. For his glory and our good, love you guys. See you next Sunday.